Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Try Faster podcast presented by the Fort Worth Tri Club, where we dive into triathlon-specific training and coaching and discuss current triathlon news and races. Uh, in our last episode, we kind of gave you a high-level overview of the different race distances and, and kind of kicking off a little mini-series. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about training for short course and going through or into specifics for each of the sports, how to structure your training, what you should really be keen on. Uh, and to help with that conversation, I have my friend and coach here, Keith Kotar. How are you doing, Keith? Pretty great, Michael. Excited to be back on. It's been a little bit. It, it is, it's been a couple weeks, uh, but for good reason. So uh, I'll, I'll start, as we normally do, with some updates first. Because um, on my end of things, a week and a half ago, I was sick for an entire week. And um, it's been a rough rough week usually when you get a bug i feel like it's usually a head cold it's easy to know when to train through um because hey it's it's isolated shoulders up um but a week and a half ago i got a bug and it was much more than a head bug it was the cold it was the chills it was a fever it was not having an appetite low energy just a, a whole bunch of things headache uh, and it continued on for a significant period of time uh, i was able to eat toast for the most part probably lost about 10 pounds, and I definitely lost a significant amount of fitness. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people right now, uh, at least here in the U.S., we're hearing a lot of conversation about RSV, uh, the flu, the cold, uh, new strands of COVID and Omicron out there. So there's a lot of people getting sick right now. And I thought it would be worthwhile, Keith, to maybe, you know, I can share that my perspective on it, having just gone through it, but from a coach's standpoint, how do you work with your athletes when they get really sick? I, I think the best thing when you get sick is just take some time off. I don't think it's worth trying to maintain fitness or anything like that through it. I think, you know, like you said, if it's a head cold, you can kind of keep it easy, but I think just do the easy stuff if it's a, if it's a light illness, but if you're really sick, you just got to take it as a break and, and get over it. Um, as quickly as you can. Cause I think the best thing for your fitness is to be back quickly than to try to keep the fitness and then make it last longer than, than it should have. Um, we had one of our, one of our junior guys got sick this week and he missed three or four days. And I think he spun on the trainer a tiny bit, swam a little bit and then, you know, gave it three or four days and he was fine. And he's a hundred percent back to normal. So you just kind of have to let it, let it work itself out and, and hopefully it's not anything long-term. Yeah, it, it it's demoralizing, though. Like I'll, I can speak from that everyone's perspective because we've all been there to know, like, hey, training was going so well. I know what's on the schedule. I know what I should be doing, but I can't do it. And it's just tough to know, like, hey, I just can't do it right now. Yeah. Uh, but to understand, and, and I try to tell myself, too, I get it, right? Like, don't push it. Don't try to get back into it too quickly because you very well may make the illness worse you may just be beating yourself up harder and ultimately causing more detriment to your fitness long term if you if you do try but it's hard to work past that because it's it's like i'm just used to working out it's part of what i enjoy it's part of how i relax honestly um and to not have that it's it's a total bummer and then to know like not only not having that and then like i am very confident i Took a couple. I'm a couple weeks backwards at this point in time, so it's tough. But I, I, I know it was the right thing for me. 
maybe the next question though is how do you get back into things like you're saying you're junior and he obviously he's a junior so he's already back to it at 100 percent. i feel like it's going to take me a couple of weeks to get back there uh, is that normal for most people or am i being a wimp no i think that's normal you gotta you'll probably have a couple of days of easy just to kind of ramp it back up and, and get going again um, just take your time getting back into it and i think the good thing right now for triathletes is you know we're three months away from the first triathlon of the year. You're probably like five or six months away from the first triathlon of the year. And so we're not in a hurry. You know, if you, uh, if you're doing a winter marathon here in the next, you know, eight weeks or four to eight weeks, I guess, then that could be a problem. But if you're a triathlete and that's your number one goal, then better to get sick now than in a few months. Yeah. Good, good point. Uh, speaking of winter marathons, uh, let's, Kick it over to you, Keith. What's been going on in your realm? How's the training going? Um, it's pretty good. I think the last time we talked, I had mentioned that I was a little bit worried about not having enough run volume in my legs to get through the marathon at the pace I wanted to, because um, the pace is the pace is easy for a while, um, and it it should be easy forever. It's just that you know going into St. George, kind of being a little bit more swim bike focused. I think I I didn't really run a, a high volume. And what I've noticed on a lot of the runs is my legs start to really hurt earlier than expected. Um, but I did a, a kind of a cruisier run last Wednesday, I think it was. So today's, what is today's Friday. So it's been a, a little over a week ago. Um, and I just did kind of worked into it. I think I started off like around six thirty or something and then just gradually brought it down and, um, I ran 18 and a half miles and averaged about 614 and it was pretty comfortable. So I think that's kind of like the floor. Like I, I could have easily run whatever that works out to like 244 or something or 243 if I would have just kept going. And so um, that's good that I could comfortably do that right now. So hopefully on race day with a massage and a taper and a few more weeks of training and it should be, should be pretty decent. Um, but mm -hmm. I am running a half marathon this weekend here locally. I'm a little bit nervous because I feel like my speed is not that great. And so we'll see what happens. Um, I'd like to at least try to run under 113. I think that would be, be good for now. I haven't really done a lot of fast stuff. So I think it's kind of funny lately. It's like 520 hurts really bad, but like 530 is pretty easy. And it's, it's like a, that must mm -hmm. be the limit right now. Whereas I think normally when I'm in good run fitness, like 520 is pretty cruisy. Um, so we'll see. I'll probably see who's out there and find the big group that's running somewhere around 530 and hopefully just uh, hang in for a while. And we'll see. I'm, I'm not going to empty the tank either, I don't think, unless I'm counting places and I'm like fighting for fifth or tenth or some cool number. Otherwise, I think I'm just going to try to keep it under control so I some can arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some arbitrary cool number. Um, I, I know I'm not going to win. There's a couple guys registered. I think that have PRs under one Oh five. So I'm expecting to just kind of be in the, in kind of the, the second group. So we'll see how, how it works. Yeah. Out. That's not, that's not your normal local race. No, it's uh people running on one Oh five. That's big. I think they get about 30,000 people, uh, between the half and the full and the five oh. K 10 K. Yeah. It's a, it's a big one. What so, race is this? It's the Dallas Marathon. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a big race. Yeah, um, so. That's big. I was fortunate enough to get an elite entry, so I do feel like I need to at least perform well enough to be deserving of that. So 
Uh, yeah, is your name on your bib type of entry? You better run well. Everyone's going to be yelling at you, Keith, Keith. Yeah, yeah, and I've got a two-digit number, so it'll stand out. <laughs> That's cool. Oh, congrats on that. Uh, you haven't even run yet. It feels good. Yeah. That must be nice. Uh, what day is it? Is it Saturday or Sunday? It's Sunday. So tonight tonight they've got a one-mile race, and so uh, Soren, Soren our, our oldest daughter, is going to run the one-mile race tonight. And then uh, tomorrow they've got a 5K, 10K, and then Sunday we'll be out there. And uh, both Jacqueline and I are running the half. Oh, Jacqueline's running too? Yeah. Good luck to her. Has she been training? Has she been getting back into... Yeah, she's been picking um, it up. Running, biking, or... Yeah, she's That's got awesome. the trainer set up, so she rides a couple times a week and runs a couple times a week, and yeah. Well, sweet. Well, uh, is she doing a try next year as well? Probably something. Uh, she did a super sprint this year, and that was that was, that was pretty fun. So I think she's she's. We looking need to, for a couple we need to get her on the podcast, and she can she can talk about her return and and how that's going, and the challenges or the enjoyment that she's getting out of it. That'd be pretty pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. The the working mom podcast. You, you gotta you gotta t- we'll tell tell her tell her we'll get her on. All awesome. right, awesome stuff. Um, okay, so let's talk about training for short course. And before we like go through the details, first the most obvious question: What the hell is a short course triathlon? Uh, because in my mind, this there's like there's actually kind of multiple buckets. But which one are we really targeting? Or are we gonna kind of cover them all? So I think to me that short course is anything that's kind of Olympic distance and down. I know that there are some races that probably have some sort of special in-between distance that's, you know, longer than Olympic or shorter than a half. But I think generally when, when we talk about short course, we mean Olympic distance and shorter, you know, and a lot of the stuff here probably will apply to sprint and Olympic. I think if your training's for super sprint, which is fairly rare, um, that would be a highly specialized um, type of training. You know, unless you're a pro and you're training for super sprint all the way up to Olympic because you're trying to be on a mixed team relay and you're trying to, you know, win, win the world championship. But I think for the kind of the age group centric discussion, it'll be sprint to Olympic distance. Okay. And this is, it's a good place to start too, because I don't know where your first entry into the sport of triathlon was. My first entry into the sport of triathlon was first a sprint race. And then several months later, three, four months later, it was an Olympic distance race. So this is exactly where I feel like a lot of triathletes, when they, hey, the first year they say they want to get into this, they want to try it, they want to see what it's like. They'll usually start with one of those two. Most likely, I feel like a sprint. I don't have the data, though, to support that, but I feel like that's where most people start. Um, Maybe they start at an Olympic distance race. Where did you start? I did a kids try and I, that was all I did for the first three years that I was in the sport was kids try and they were a hundred yards and two miles and a half a mile or a mile or something. Um, and then I moved up in age group and they were like 200, five miles and a mile and a half. Um, and so I didn't do my first sprint till I was 13. It was 2004. Um, and then I didn't move up to the Olympic distance till I was 15. I did a couple in 2006. Um, but then even then the Olympic distance, I was, it was a little bit, I, d- I did that sparingly cause of my age. Uh, and then, yeah, I didn't move up to long course until, well, actually I did one long course race when I was 17 just for fun. Um, but everything else was, was short course, yeah. mostly sprint. And do you think for younger athletes, it makes sense to stay on the shorter end of the spectrum earlier in the career? 
Yeah, I think that's better. I, I would like to see the juniors race super sprint. And right now they race sprint that's half Olympic. But I think that for development, it would be better if we saw the juniors racing super sprint. And then maybe you start to race sprint at the U23 level. Um, but, you know, also, I mean, at the pro level too, there's there's a lot more sprint races. So if you go look at the world triathlon calendar, the uh, the series has more sprints on it than Olympic as of now. And so I know they're going to add a couple dates, but sprint is becoming, you know, much more popular. I think it's more fun to watch too, if we're talking about pros. And so I think from a, an athlete development perspective, training for the shorter races is better because even a super sprint for an elite junior is at least 25 minutes, you know, um, I mean, unless you're super special. So it's still a fairly long race when you consider that, you know, in the running world, they're running 5k, which is 15 minutes and you know, they're swimming the 500, maybe they swim the 1500, but again, that's, you know, for an elite swimmer, that's 16, 17, 18 minutes. And so we're not, uh, we're, we're still in a much longer race at super sprint. And then when, uh, when juniors, when youths move up to junior, that's their 16 year old season. So you've got kids that are 15, 16 years old training for a race. that's going to take them over an hour. Um, and so that's kind of, I think, I think it's better to skew shorter for, for the younger guys. Yeah, keep them fresh and hopefully enjoying it. And it goes with an enjoyment factor when the race is short. If you're having a bad day, at least it's not a, a very long bad day and you can bounce back yeah. from it. Um, but and that's and hey, we're gonna talk about the long course stuff later. But when you have a bad day in an Ironman, it's you, you don't enjoy it and uh it's hard it's, to come back. You don't wanna come back. <laughs> right. Yeah, there are days when I'm out there and a half and I have a bad day and I'm like, man. I can't imagine ever doing an yeah. Ironman, you know, and then a week later, I'm like, man, I'm ready to do an Ironman, but yeah, for sure. Like in the moment it's, yeah. it's really bad. Uh, <laughs> so but yeah, I, I like the short stuff. I think it's a lot more fun. I wish that I was, I wish I had a lot of speed so that I was, I was good at this kind of stuff. Cause you know, when you see some of the young guys racing sprint, it's, uh, it's amazing how fast they are. I would like to do more shorter stuff too. Also because it's also more local normally, right? Like if you're an age grouper and you want to get into the short course stuff, there's more short course options locally. You're not going to have to go as far. You're going to have race directors putting on races and in your own backyard, most likely. Um, and that would be something I, I, maybe next year that I'll try to try to target some of those locally here because they're fun. They're fun. And it's, and it's a really cool way to also meet other people yeah. that are just getting into the sport. So, all right. We've talked about short course. Let's get into maybe some high level details as to hey, what to expect when you start training for a short course triathlon. How do you work with your athletes on this? So I think from just, just to kind of preface what we're going to talk about, this is kind of, you're already past that beginner level. And so I feel like if you're listening to our podcast to try to coach yourself, you're probably uh, maybe, maybe a beginner episode is something we should do later down the line. Like if you're just getting into the sport, um, and so this is, you know, you've done a lot of races and you're starting to try to get, get better or be competitive. Um, and so just kind of like some overall, all points to think about when you're training for short course, you know, when you're in long course, it's a lot of steady stuff. Um, you know, the volume is much lower intensity. Um, and that's not to say that there's not low intensity work that is necessary for sprint and Olympic, but you're going to do a lot of stuff that's, that's pretty fast throughout the year. And so I think kind of the best way to, to visualize it is, you know, I think we had kind of talked last time about how periodization is, is going away a little bit. Um, 
and it's more like we're trying to hit all of the all of the different um, energy systems all year round, but it's just kind of in different amounts based on the time of year. So it's still periodized, but we're we're not spending whole blocks of training focused on one thing. We're we're spending time working, you know, different zones and um, as the year goes on. Um, but I think the best way to kind of visualize short course, especially is funnel periodization. And so I think, um, what that kind of focuses on is, you know, in the beginning of the year, it's a lot of high intensity and then a lot of low intensity. And then that high intensity work kind of starts to slow down as the year goes on. And then the volume of easy work, uh, that starts to become a little less easy and that, that intensity goes up until they meet at, you know, about your race pace. And then we're, we're spending some time right around the race pace, um, at the end. Uh, since we're a podcast and not a video show, you know, if you Google funnel periodization, um, I believe the first image that comes up is a pretty nice chart. That's a, a good reference for funnel periodization. Um, but the focus on that is, you know, we're getting closer and closer to our race pace. So we're way above and then we're way below at the beginning of the year. Um, and then kind of that high end speed starts to come down and then the, the lower end stuff starts to become like tempo-y and threshold-y. Um, and until, until we meet at race pace and we'll, we'll kind of talk about what your race pace is like for every sport here in a minute. How, um, how long, and then though? another consideration. Oh, like, oh sorry. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I just want to ask a question. So like you're talking about the periodization of a plan, if you're an athlete that, Hey, they're coming to you for coaching. How long does a training plan ideally? And then how much flexibility do you have in that for like how much time it should be? Is this a 12 month program typically to kind of get the most out of yourself, rinse, repeat? Is there flexibility in that? So I think if, if you're planning your year, you know, you, you figure out which races are the most important to you. So, you know, maybe if you're an age trooper and you're focused on short course, you're trying to go to Milwaukee for age group nationals next year, then you've got plenty of time from right now. Um, but if you're an age grouper and you're not qualified yet, then maybe you need to, you know, have a, a period of training that focuses on a spring race so that you can qualify. Then you'll have another chunk of training that gets you ready for race day. Um, I think the thing about short course that's really interesting is that since you can race a lot more frequently than you can in long course, you can kind of get pretty fit early in the year. And then from there you can kind of dose whatever type of training you need. And so, again, I think this is probably where having a coach or at least somebody that you could talk to about training uh, comes in pretty handy because say you do a March race, right? And then you still have four or five months to age group nationals, but it's also the race season. So you're not really going to put in a huge chunk of time way above your threshold and then huge chunks of time way below your threshold. We're going to try to stay race sharp, right? For the next few months. Um, but what you might need to do is insert a break here, insert two or three weeks of, you know, high or, you know, polarized training for a couple of weeks just to, to hit both ends. Um, but then I think that the nature of short course, since it's kind of right around your, your threshold for the most part, you can, you can kind of train right above and right below all year long. And then I think, you know, what we do with our, with our juniors is they need to be fit in March, April to, to race the first couple of races. Um, and then they really don't need to be, you know, maximally fit until July, August. And so we get in pretty good shape. And then as the season's going on, we kind of tweak 
you know, we, we mix in what, what we feel like we need. So if we're feeling a little slow, we can get some speed. You know, if we're feeling pretty fast, but we're lacking some endurance, we can do some, some threshold work or some sub threshold work. Um, but I think that's also the kind of stuff you do all year round. Okay. Um, let's talk then, let's get specific. So we can kind of run through the swim, bike, run. What does the training look like in each one of those? And then like maybe a little bit of detail is how does the, the periodization shift? throughout the beginning, middle, and now you're getting race day ready, specific on the, on the plan. Uh, let's, let's dive into the swim first. What does that normally look like for athletes? So I think uh, in the swim, uh, we'll start kind of in the, the higher end in the beginning of the season. So, you know, if it's winter, like if you're starting your training right now, you're probably going to focus on technique. And, you know, with that, we can kind of work on the speed because, you know, if you're doing really, really fast, you know, 25s or even shorter than 25s, you know, to go really fast, you have to have good technique. So I think that's a good way to kind of practice that, that element of it, because you do the technique work and then work on your stroke. And then we do some fast stuff and try to mimic that good technique while we're swimming fast. Um, and then it's a good time to start to increase the volume, but you don't need to swim big long intervals necessarily, you know, you don't need to be swimming 800 or a thousand or I think the thing you see lots of triathletes do is they just hop in the pool and swim like two or three K straight. I don't know that that's really beneficial. You know, that's something you can do, you know, later in the season or probably never really. I don't think I would, I very rarely would, would, uh, assign somebody a workout like that. And so I think, you know, get in and warm up, work on your technique and then have a, a good swim set. Uh, and your main sets, I think early in the year, like I said, it's going to be speed, but I think one of the things that triathletes, especially being, um, generally like type A people that want to really hit it is they don't have enough rest. So if you're swimming max effort, 25s or fifties, feel free to take three, four or five minutes in between, you know, swim easy for a little bit. Um, I think a lot of people they'll swim a 50 really fast and then they'll think 30 or 40 seconds later, they're ready to go again but then you're not really getting a lot of quality out of that next one because you're still tired. So when you're doing your really fast training, make sure that you take plenty of rest. Um, and then as the season goes on too, and we start to kind of move toward like VO2 work, um, the, another thing that I think conventional swimming is, you know, you swim 20 times a hundred and you only have like 10 or 15 seconds rest. I think finally people are starting to kind of get a little bit smarter about that. And so make sure that again, you can take a little bit more rest. We don't need to be swimming like old school swimmers and taking, you know, swimming hundreds at 130 on 140. We can take, take some more rest because if you're swimming, you know, above your threshold for a hundred and say it's a minute and a half, right? If you were doing something uh, for a minute and a half at 105% on the bike, you wouldn't take 15 seconds rest, right? You would take like a minute or two minutes, right? And so, kind of plan for that, you know, maybe you're swimming hundreds at 130 and you can go on 215, make sure that you're ready to, to hit, hit the pace, right. And, and go a little faster. Um, cause it's still going to be highly aerobic. And if you feel like that's too much time to sit there, then swim an easy 25 to the other end and, you know, get some active recovery and then swim the next. Yeah. Hundred. I feel like as like a normal age grouper, the swim in general, as we go through this whole little series, I have no idea how to structure swim workouts. Cause you're right. Like I would just swim a couple K and that was a good day. Um, so everything you're sharing is helpful, but I also think like for most people, 
that are listening, like most triathletes don't have a swim background. And that's quite evident when you, if you just go watch any sort of triathlon, you look at the people swimming, they, 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 it's, it's usually kind of embarrassing. Um, so my message for those listening, if you're anything like me, is like, you just, you need to get some help and like, you need someone to tell you what to do. And it can't be necessarily a pure swimmer. Maybe if you're in a master's group, but they understand your, what you're training for, or how you're trying to build and what you're working toward, that might be helpful. Um, other than that, you kind of need to find a coach and someone like Keith to kind of work you through this and make sure you're not swimming in a stupid way. Because um, I've done that for so long. I've just swam in a stupid way. I'm going to get a couple K in. It's going to be good. That's going to help me. And I like try to think about like, hey, let me make this a little more race specific. Maybe I'll do some fast, uh, the first 50, 100, 200 of it fast, and then get into a cruisy effort after that, like make it simulate what the race might look like. But nothing that truly actually probably helped me work on technique or help me build fitness in the right way. So I think that's all helpful. One question I have for you, though, from your perspective, how do you see it? Like, because at least in my standpoint, as you work up in distance, the swim becomes less and less important. That might not be your perspective on it entirely. But like if you're at a 70.3, you're at an Ironman. The swim is a smaller percentage of your overall time. And you can make it up in other areas, even in the transition area, like run. But in like a sprint and to a strong degree in Olympic, Olympic especially, like the swim is a much more equal percentage of your overall race time versus some of those longer distances. Do you feel like it's more important on the shorter end than the longer end? Yeah, that was that was my next point, actually, was that the uh... – the swim is, is pretty important when you're in the sprint in the Olympic because you can lose a big chunk of time and then you don't have as much time later to make it up, you know, especially if you're doing a standard distance sprint. So like if you're training for age group nationals, you know, a lot of your local races, the sprint might be 300, 400, 500, but you go to age group nationals and the swim is 750. So proportionally it's the same as an Olympic distance. And so if you're losing, 30 seconds per hundred to the top swimmer, you're already four minutes down. Um, and if assuming that that top swimmer is an elite cyclist, you'd have to average two miles an hour faster than them on the bike to catch them before the end of the bike. And so that would be pretty difficult, right? If you're, um, again, if you're talking about the pointy end of the field, then if you just gave somebody three minutes and they're going to average 24 miles an hour on the bike, um, then you need to get back 15 seconds per mile, which means you'd have to average 27 miles an hour to catch them. Good luck. So that's, uh, your race is pretty much over. Yeah. Even if you do that, your uh, run is going to so really suck. The swim is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Or you need to be a really good runner and hope that that swimmer is, uh, is not a runner, yeah. but, um, yeah, you can, you can gift people, you can lose the race in the, in the swim. You're probably not again, one of the oldest triathlon cliches, I guess, you know, you can't win, a triathlon in the swim, but, um, even in a sprint distance, you can, you can blow the whole race in the first couple hundred meters. So, um, I think the, the thing about the swim, sorry, I was just going to say, it's not always about the win, right? Only one person can truly win a race, but like, think about it for your own race. Like if you're an age grouper, you're just trying to have a better time, trying to have a better experience, the better off you do in the swim, it's going to set you up for the rest of the race. And proportionally, it is a bigger piece of the puzzle on the shorter distance sprint Olympic uh, events versus a half distance or a full distance 
triathlon. So it's important. Even if you're not going for the win, it's important. Yeah, because, you know, it also kind of sets up like how the rest of your day goes, because if, you know, nowadays where the, uh, the mass starts are kind of dead, if you're a good swimmer and you're able to start near the front, you're probably going to have a cleaner ride. And then, you know, you know, you'll have less traffic on the ride, um, less traffic on the run. You'll be the first person to get through all the aid stations. So if you can just have a good swim, it makes the rest of your day easier, you know, unless you're, you're betting on being able to slipstream past everybody on the bike and hope that that makes your ride faster. Yeah. But uh, I think in most cases you want the clean ride. Yep. Uh, I think the fun thing about this one though, is that it's probably the one where you can kind of mimic race day the most and do a lot of things, you know, in your training, because if you're training for non-drafting, once you're out of the swim, you know, again, unless you're competing for the win or a place like the dynamics of the race kind of end almost after the swim, right? Cause there's a lot more chaos in the swim than there are on the bike, uh, in the run. But, um, I think one of the biggest things is as you get closer to race day in your swim, make sure that you're, you're starting to incorporate things like drafting and sighting, turning, you know, if you have the ability to go open water, swim, go with a buddy, you know, two or three of you swim together, practice drafting, practice going around the buoys, uh, and doing things that are similar to race day. Um, and then also practicing getting out quickly, you know, starting at the first 50 or a hundred faster than you're going to swim, because realistically, I think 95% of us all know that that's exactly how we start triathlons. Uh, that's exactly how we start long course races. We swim that first hundred with a bunch of people around us and we're excited. And then, uh, the fatigue starts to set in. So do that in your, in your pool sets, you know, swim a broken 200. And so in the first 50 at, you know, 90, 95% effort and, take 10 seconds rest and swim 150 at, at race pace. Um, and you know, maybe that's one of those things you start in the early season because you're, you're working on the speed. So go ahead and use some of that speed. And then maybe you swim a 50 really fast, take 30, 40 seconds rest and swim a hundred at race pace, you know, and do that a few times. Um, and then as you get closer and closer to race day, maybe that, that 40, 50 seconds rest, turns into no rest and you're swimming 200 or 300 straight with 50 fast and then settling into race pace, uh, to get more specific. Yeah. I think that's all very helpful. Let's transition to the bike. And while we do that, let's talk about transitions though. And I don't know if there's a whole lot to say, like we're not going to break yeah. apart how to do a transition quick, but the key thing here is it's super important to practice your damn transitions. And I say that, but I, I'm not necessarily one to put that to practice. Um, and it's mostly because I've been doing more on the longer course over the last couple of years. But um, when I was doing the, the sprints, the Olympics, you have to practice the transition. You don't necessarily have to do a flying mount. Um, you don't even have necessarily have to start with your shoes on your bike. But there's clearly steps as if you can learn them, it's going to be faster. The most important thing is whatever your process is, you need to make sure you practiced it. You need to make sure you know you can do it as quickly as you possibly can because five seconds, 10 seconds is really big. And I've seen some people, and when I did my first triathlon, I was that person that took minutes in transition. And if you're doing a sprint or an Olympic, minutes in transition, there goes your, your race. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're competing for the win, but two minutes in your race is a big difference between a PR or how, how you feel at, did I really perform my best here? So just practice, 
practice the transitions, whatever it's going to be. And of course, you, you can skill those up over time, but you just need to practice. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like you mentioned, the shoes on your bike, I think that's one of the essential things that you need to practice. Um, especially if you plan to do it, you definitely have to practice. If you don't plan to do it, you should practice and see if you're capable of doing that. Because uh, I had heard a, on another podcast that's hosted by a pro triathlete, he was talking about how age groupers don't need to do that because they're not pros. They just need to take their time and run in their bike shoes. And if you're at age group nationals and there's 7,000 people there, how long is that transition that you're going to be running in your bike shoes? Like you're losing time standing at your bike, putting your shoes on. You're losing time clip-clopping for 300 meters or 400 meters in your bike shoes you know, um, and then you have to get on slowly cause you come to a complete stop when you get on your bike. Like they're just, there's so much time that you just lost. You know, if I'm running five thirty pace with my bike with, because I don't have my shoes on and you're clopping at eight minute mile pace, right. You just lost 20 seconds just running from your rack to the mount line. Right. And so you do need to practice those things. Uh, don't do it without practicing though, because we don't need anybody to crash or take everybody else out. So fun videos to watch um, because there's someone at the bike mount has a camera going. If you crash, it will be on Instagram. It will be somewhere. So thank you for the entertainment value. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and make sure that, you know, if you do do it, try to find a way to secure your shoes. I know some of the bikes nowadays, like my time trial bike, I can't secure my shoes. So they're horizontal. Um, there's just nowhere to, to hang the loop. And so unfortunately that makes it a little bit slower for me hopping on. Um, but most bikes you can find a way to, uh, to clip it on, if, especially if you have a water bottle down below, um, or if you have mechanical shifting, you can use like a, one of your cables to, uh, to hook a rubber band on. And that makes it a lot easier because you can hop on and get, at least get on top of your shoes. You know, some of the guys that nowadays, especially the younger ones, they can hop in and they go straight into their shoes before they start pedaling. Uh, and that's, that's pretty impressive. So if you can do that, that's the biggest time savings is you just hop on and then your feet go straight into your open shoes and you start yeah. pedaling. I, I definitely think uh, the, the flying mount while, while we're on the topic is important in the shorter races, but I've been using road shoes in 70.3. And if I ever jump up to the Ironman distance, I think I would go with a road shoe most likely because it's more comfortable. It's more secure. It's a better fit on the foot versus a tri shoe or a tri shoe on the bike is more open. I feel like the fit is not necessarily as, as good, but you can definitely wear those without socks. My road shoes on the bike, I've tried without socks to see if it was possible and they're just not comfortable. Tons of hot spots. I got a blister on the top of my foot. Um, so I put socks on and then I put my shoes on and I sound like a horse, like I'm running through transition. Um, but I think that that's better because the comfort's better and the fit's better on the bike throughout the entire uh, mid or long course bike ride. So weigh your pros and cons, but practice it, yeah. whatever you decide to do. Yeah. And I think uh, the other, the other part too, is if you have a road shoe, maybe you can't put it on while you're riding. Cause some of them have, you know, kind of complicated buckles and things like that, but lots of times you can take them off. And so you can at least save that running time in the second transition. Uh, because usually shoes are, they're a little bit easier to take off than to put on. Um, and then, uh, I think just the last thing too, is practice putting your running shoes on practice, putting your helmet on, taking them off, all that kind of stuff. 
the old the old rule of thumb is you should never be standing at your bicycle for more than six seconds, right? So you come in, you put your helmet on, grab your bike, and you're gone. Um, and it's the same thing in T2, maybe eight seconds. You throw your, you, you put your bike on. If it, This is the order also. You put your bike on, you put your shoes on, and then your helmet's coming off as you're running away and you throw your helmet backwards behind you, right? Or if you have a basket, you toss it into the basket. Um, also put your race belt on while you're running. Don't put your race belt on standing at your bike. So shoes on before your helmet comes off, and then you can unclip your helmet, grab your race belt at the same time, and throw your helmet as you're running away. Okay. That is that is the fastest way to get through T2. Um, and also remember, with the new USAT rules, your helmet needs to be on all the time, before, during, and after the race, whenever you're touching your bike. So don't get a penalty for that. It needs to be on and strapped while you're waiting in line to get into transition, while you're running your bike through transition, and when you're walking your bike out of Walking transition. the bike? Yes, all okay. the time. You can get DQ'd now before the race starts if you're walking your bike without. Okay, your well that's on. that's a stupid rule. So, and never have I ever seen it enforced, but I'm sure there's an example of it, and whoever enforced it is stupid. Walking we, your bike. We went to a race this year where they were yelling at people to, uh, yeah, you've got to have it on, and and in transition at nationals they were giving out penalties if you unbuckled your helmet while you were running to your bike spot with your bike, so. A good, just make sure a good you, example uh, of an ineffective your, your race organization or yeah that's that's that doesn't make sense i've seen the, the one that bugs me is when people before or after don't have the helmet on while they're riding their bike sure that's a problem but to like make rules so obscure as like make sure you have your helmet on if you're walking your bike okay i'll, I'll put my mouth guard in too ridiculous yeah that that was to eliminate any gray area between what people considered riding and not riding and so uh that's something that world triathlon has had for a really long time and uh usat i think the thing with usat is they were seeing lots of people put their helmets on and then not buckling them and running so now again it's like eliminating the gray area your helmet's just buckled if it's on your head and you're touching your bike um that way people aren't running through transition with their helmet not buckled. And then they hop on their bike and start riding and their helmet still isn't buckled because they forgot. You know, you put it on, buckle it, grab Honestly, your bike. Honestly, it sounds like more gray area to me <laughs> than necessary. And I don't necessarily do this a lot, but I'll give kudos to Iron Man. I've never seen anyone in an Iron Man enforcing rules like that. Uh, and I've never seen in the Iron Man rules booklets that they're highlighting those rules either. So um, they must they must clearly not emphasize those, those points. It's not because it's it's not an Iron Man rule because we saw at seventy point three worlds right where Magnus ran all the way out of transition without his helmet. And had to go back <laughs> Clearly and not an Iron Man rule. The the whole another conversation about Iron Man rules, but uh, yeah, some they have, some they don't. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the bike. Let's get away from so, transition and dumb rules. All right, so now we're on the bike. Um, I think that uh, the biggest thing about the bike, you know, aside from the the fitness and the science part is skills here you know um a lot of these races they're probably more populated areas you know i think here in texas a lot of our sprint tries you get lots of turns they're a lot more technical so you do need to be able to handle your bike a lot more than in a long course race um you know a lot of the ironman races now they kind of set them up to be fast i feel like they're eliminating the challenging ironman races outside of you know there's a select handful um but for the most part 
you know, you're not really making turns anymore. Like this year, you know, I went and did 70.3 Lubbock. I think there were, uh, there was one U-turn and maybe eight 90 degree turns and that was it over the 56 miles. But then at the, uh, the PTO US Open here, we had like something like eight or 11, eight turns and three U-turns, I think is what it was per lap for what was supposed to be a, you know, an 80K ride um, and three laps. So you would have had, you know, 30, 30 plus turns, you know, over that span. So you do need to, to be able to turn because you could lose a lot of time if you lose two or three seconds every turn for, you know, 15 turns in a, in a 20K race, then you're, you just lost half a mile an hour essentially. And so uh, it's important to be able to handle your bike, practice, practice taking turns with your time trial bike, with whatever bike you're going to use on race day, um, practice getting on and off. Uh, like we kind of talked about just a minute ago. Here's so, a question. Handling and skills. Very just important. To, just to jump on that with a quick question. Should triathletes do crit races? This would kind of fit that bill. Yes Riding no. in a pack, definitely not a skill that they need unless they're doing draft legal. But it would hit the turns. It would improve your comfort uh, going max speed through 90 degree turns, not touching the brakes, things like crit racers do they have the skills to handle all those types of situations excel uh, even an average crit racer is going to excel in a triathlon in terms of bike handling and ability like should they do that i think so I, if you have a an easily accessible bike bike race like an open road race or a crit near you i think it's good to do it make sure that you're safe make sure that you go ride with some people before you just jump into a crit but yeah, I think it's great for the skills. Um, you know, where we live, unfortunately, the closest, there's a weekly crit in Dallas, but I mean, that's an hour away. Um, and it's on a weeknight, so you're probably talking more than an hour away, um, you know, with traffic. Uh, we used to have one that was really close, 20 minutes away from here, but it's it's gone now. Um, and so, yeah, if you've got some sort of regular crit that you can do even during the season, I think that's great because it does give you those skills that, you know, you might not get just from that you definitely won't get just from from riding on your own and so yeah i think that's that's pretty that's a good idea or cyclocross because you can fall in cyclocross and it's not quite as bad uh it does teach you a lot of handling skills making tight turns and yeah going but up you do like inclines and stuff like that. 180 degree turns which is like yes you might see in a triathlon but they're i feel like less common but when you do see them they are pretty funny because triathletes cannot do that <laughs> We, yeah, we, no, we man, there's a race. Charles Barkley, like almost, she had to unclip. What was it? Was it PTO Dallas? She had to unclip at the 90 degree um, because she w overshot it completely. Like we're talking pros. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a race in Arkansas that we go to every year and it's got a right-handed U-turn and the Olympic is eight 5k loops and you have to make that right-handed U-turn eight times. And That's it's tough. a, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. I've done a road body. race with a, with the 180 degree U-turn and uh, yeah, if you can figure out in a, or a, it was more of a crit race. It was pretty small, but I think technically called a road race. Uh, if you can figure out a U-turn in a pack and a crit with the braking and accelerating and the handling, then I think you can figure it out on a try. So it's worth a shot. I've done some crits. I'm terrible at them, definitely below average, but I, when I do them, I very, clearly can see how it's impacting my comfort or ability to handle the tri bike as well. So it's worth a shot if it's available to you. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so on the training side on the bike, you know, it's, it's going to be similar to the swim. You're kind of going to work on your neuromuscular power in the beginning and your endurance. And then I think this is kind of where you need to figure out more if you're like a volume responder on both, this is the, for the bike and the run, you know, or if you're lacking speed, you know, maybe you need to do a little bit more top end work, uh, throughout the whole season. Uh, but again, we're going to kind of follow that, that funnel periodization model and move toward more race specific work. Um, but if you're trying to get in, if you have the time and you have the energy to put in higher volumes, you know, the bike, you're going to be riding really, really close to your threshold if you're doing an Olympic distance race. And then generally, I think for most people, you're riding basically right at your threshold for a sprint distance race. You know, um, as you kind of get further toward the back of the pack, you know, those, those numbers are going to come down and you'll be riding below your threshold for both. But, you know, if you're in that upper, you know, 15, 20%, then your sprint ride, you're going to be right at your threshold because you'll be in that 30 minute range, 27 to 35 minutes. And you're pushing your threshold the whole way. Um, the Olympic distance, you know, you're going to be riding between 55 and 105. If you're at the pointy end, you know, I think the kind of the main chunk of competitive athletes, you're going to be around 115, 120. So you're riding a little more below your threshold. So a lot of work that you can do right below your threshold. Um, and again, that allows you to do more volume of work too, because when you're over your threshold, you really start to kind of decrease the amount of time you can spend at that higher end. But if you're riding 90, 95%, a lot of your rides, even down to 85%, you can get a lot of volume of work in. And so that's kind of what we're looking for is to get really comfortable sitting at 95% for, you know, an hour. Right. And if you can do that mm -hmm. in big chunks, you know, um, working towards, you know, maybe start like four by five minutes at 90% and maybe we're progressing to five or six by 10 minutes at 90, 95% with a couple minutes in between, uh, just to practice that that's right in that range where you're below your LT2 and you're putting in a lot of volume, but it's a really good amount of work. Um, and then I think on the opposite end too, you know, you do need to have some of that upper end speed. And so you'll, you need to throw in some VO2 max type efforts as we get closer to race day. Um, and just like on the swim practice doing race pace and surging, and then coming back to race pace, uh, because, you know, we all think about non-drafting triathlon as being, you know, you're just get on the bike and then you chill at your race pace, but there's going to be people around, you know, unless you're the first person out of the water, um, but there's going to be people, there's going to be turns and U-turns. And so you do need to practice having those five, 10, 15 second power spikes um, when you're coming out of a turn or if you're passing somebody or passing a group. And so you do, you do need to have the ability to go up really hard, 150% of FTP and then come back down. Um, that might be too big of a surge, but you know, if That's you do big. need to, to kind of make a jump um, and then come back, come back down and, and settle into to your race pace. I gotta be honest. It sounds like, the perfect training solution on a bike for short course, swift it up, get in a Zwift race. Because that's, this is what it is. You're going to hit 120. You're going to hit a VO2. You're going to drop down. You're going to sit in that sweet spot, upper sweet, upper, upper sweet spot territory for a long time. Um, maybe you'll have moments of recovery, but it sounds like a Zwift race. You should, you should get on the Zwift train. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a shot, Keith. Yeah, we, we should do some racing together on Zwift. This is perfect.
yeah, yeah. Lifting that's, that's right I where might, you are. I might yeah, be, a little bit above. Little yeah, bit I might below. be doing some. I might be doing a lot of short course racing. This sounds fun. Yeah, it is. It's it's the most fun. Um, yeah. But again, you don't need to do uh, you don't need to do huge volumes of the upper end training either. So if you're, you know, if you're doing a VO two max workout, you can do you know maybe ten minutes of total work uh, on the upper end, because I think uh, part of it that people forget is, you know, when you're when you're designing a workout, you also need to look at how much of that time is really in that training zone. Um, because if you're doing two minute intervals, um, the first few seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, you might not actually be, your legs might be doing a power that's in that range, but then on the aerobic side, you might not get into that upper range until, you know, your, your interval is halfway over or, or nearly over. And so that's one consideration to make. Um, and then the other part of it too, is looking at, you know, like what happens to your heart rate, uh, during the recovery. Because let's say you've got a two-minute recovery, you're you don't just stop working and then start the recovery, and suddenly you're not doing a VO2 max workout anymore or some sort of higher-end workout because your body doesn't know that you're not still working really hard because your heart rate is still really high, you know, and, and so it, there's like a delay before it comes back down, and so if you do five by two minutes at 120 percent, you might be doing 100 five by two minutes at 120 percent of your power. But you do need to keep an eye on the actual effort and what's happening to you physiologically, because maybe it takes you 30 seconds of the interval to ramp back up to that heart rate, but then maybe it's 50, 60 seconds before your heart rate comes back down after. So really you just spent two and a half minutes in that heart rate zone instead of two minutes like you had prescribed. And it also wasn't during the work interval. It was during the work yeah. interval and during the recovery. I mean, you're bringing up an interesting idea, but like, there is a difference and it's decoupling the physical muscular skeletal training versus the cardio training that's occurring and the fitness required from each system to actually pedal a bike at VO2 max, right? You kind of have to have both, but it's an interesting idea. And like one, which I've seen used as the argument for uh, sauna, steam, dry, whatever it might be doing post-workout because it'll allow you, Hey, go into a sauna for 30 minutes turn the heat up really high or a hot tub and you'll be able to maintain a high, your body, your heart will maintain a higher heart rate throughout that entire duration close to or similar to what you were just training at, even though you're not doing any actual physical work, your heart rate, your cardiovascular system will maintain it and you'll get a benefit from that. Plus a little bit of heat acclimation. I don't know. Interesting topic. Totally. Okay. We're going down the wrong. We're going, we're, we're, we're jumping off course here. All right. Yeah, maybe we should. Uh, we'll we'll have to have we'll add that to the the list of potential episodes. The uh, the extension of training, I guess. What happens after after you work out or between intervals and things like that? Uh, because there's a lot of stuff that your body is still figuring out. I really want to have a sauna in my house, though. One, because I like it. it's comfortable, it's enjoyable, but then two, the physical training benefits post workout sauna use can bring are. A little questionable, but are hey, if it if you enjoy it, plus it might actually benefit your training, then go for it. It's like win win. Yeah. All right. So, do we want to uh, transition into the run? Yeah. I think uh, I think this is probably the one that's the hardest to kind of give a general plan for, just because um, it's a little bit harder to get hurt on the swim of the bike, you know, unless you crash. Um, 
the uh, the run, this is the one where you really need to kind of know what you're physically capable of and where your where your limits are. Um, but again, it's kind of like swimming. If if you want to go fast, right, you need to be kind of technically sound. And so in the beginning of the year, we'll do a lot of really fast stuff, um, sprinting and you know hill sprints, flat sprints, uh, things like that. Plus, you know, endurance running. Um, and just like the bike, though, we're going to kind of move toward that race pace. And so your faster stuff will start to slow down. Uh, the endurance work, you'll start to pick that pick that up. Um, and so I, I think we had mentioned this on a previous episode that kind of a rule of thumb, there's definitely no science behind this, but what I've seen with a lot of the athletes that I coach um, is that whatever your open race pace is, so like if you're, your 5K, your open, let's say your open 10K pace, right, is probably close to your triathlon 5K pace. Um, that definitely doesn't mean that they're exactly the same, but if you're training by pace over power, um, lots of the time, if you're training for a sprint try, that 5K, double that on the road and without swimming and biking, and that's probably what you're going to do. So if you're looking at, you know, your Olympic distance, your 10K pace off the bike is probably close to your open half marathon. Uh, again, everybody's a little bit different, whether you're a strong runner, how badly the bike and the swim of the bike affect you. Um, but usually with a lot of the athletes that I coach, we can kind of see a pretty strong correlation between, you know, your open time and then half that distance is what your, your triathlon pace is. So that's a good starting point at least. And then you can kind of dial that in. Um, I think a couple things to look at here is you know, after is to look at what first, what your bike is going to be like. And so to plan for your run, because if you're doing a bike, we had talked about this last time, keeping the course in mind, you know, if you're planning on a really flat course and it's going to take you 60 minutes, but then your race is actually, you know, really, really hard. It's going to take you 75 minutes. That's going to affect your run quite a bit because you just spent 25% more time on the bike than you plan for. And so you do need to kind of keep those things in mind too, um, as you're looking at what your run training is going to be like. Um, I think generally your Olympic distance run is going to be right around your threshold. And then your sprint distance run is going to be above your threshold because that's, that's going to be um, really, really hard. If you're really at the pointy end, then your Olympic distance run will be above your threshold too, because you'll be off the bike. You don't really have any rest, but you're kind of switching, switching some muscles. You'll have a little bit of a, a break in there as you kind of get into transition, a little bit of a mental reset. Um, and then you're, you're pushing pretty hard and maybe your sub threshold for half of it. And then you're above your threshold, you know, toward the end. Um, but that's, uh, that's something to, to think about too, is, is those energy systems. Again, you're going to be above and below on the run. Here, here's kind of a question breaking down a swim, bike and run. And it might change based off your athlete, but like give a, give an average. If you're training for a short course, how do you divide up the time on a training plan? So is in like uh, divide up the time between the sports? Yeah. Is it like a third, a third, a third? Is it an even split, which I think would make it quite easy to understand, or does it shift in a certain direction? You're back. 
Okay, I just lost you completely there. All right. Did you hear my question though? Was it was it how to divide up the time between the different sports? Yeah. Okay. Like, is it a third, a third, a third? Is it different? Is it run focused, bike heavy? Like, where does it land on average? Okay, so I think if you're trying to plan your week, you know, you probably you don't want to have your your quality rides and runs necessarily too close together. Um, I think to get better in the sports, you definitely need at least three workouts in each sport. You know, I know that swimming is kind of the hard one. Some people can't get to the pool that often. And so that's something to keep in mind. But I think three, three workouts in every sport is ideal. You know, if you're an age grouper, you're probably going to say max is five workouts in every sport. Um, unless you've got a lot of time, you know, and you can, you can do all the sports, you know, every day. But five that's, in every sport 15 that'd workouts? be the max right that's like on the upper end right um, but that might not necessarily mean that might not necessarily mean big workouts either like you might do a hard ride and then you get off and do a 10 minute transition run right that might be one of your five runs right we're not saying like five standalone workouts necessarily in every okay. sport five but efforts think, of each sport yeah, if you're if you are even if it's short as two. Yes, right. If you are like an upper end age trooper and you have plenty of time and you're recovering enough, you know, I think that would be kind of an ideal spot. But I think most people, if you do three of every sport, you're probably in a pretty good place time wise. Um there's a lot of considerations here. You know, I think for a lot of people, um, you want to kind of split up your bike and your run and maybe do one every other day and you can drop a quality swim on the days in between. Um, I think also something to think about is maybe you do a quality bike one day and a quality run the next day. That way you're kind of running with some fatigue built in. And so that way it's a little bit, it's a little bit tougher. It's a little more realistic to what you might feel on race day than if you split them up by, you know, a day or two. Um, and so I think that's, that's something to keep in mind and also just planning your week around your, your life schedule, right? Maybe you can only swim at this time or you can only bike at this time or, you know, you can bike at this time, but it's inside. Then you kind of have to, to play with that a little bit. Um, but you know, two workouts a day, I think is normal. Um, you can also see how you feel doing certain things. So I know like some people will do one hard workout basically every day, whether it's swimming, biking or running. But then some people like to have a completely easy day. So maybe they swim hard in the morning, run hard in the afternoon. Whatever sport they do the next day is all easy. Then the next day, maybe they bike hard in the morning, swim hard in the afternoon, and then have a complete easy day. So you need to see what's best for your body from that perspective. Okay. Um, so you, then, you shocked me at 15 workouts, but um, these are also shorter though too. Than like what I'm thinking about training for a 7.3 right. or a marathon. Yeah. Like these are 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I think for the most part. Um, so then uh, on the run, you kind of want to get, get better at extending that race pace. And so I think one of the things that separates triathlon running from, from normal running is you can usually put in a higher volume of work at your race pace because it's slower. You know, a 5K guy that runs track right he's not going to go put in tons and tons of volume at 5k pace because it's going to be really really physically demanding 
But if we're talking about your 5K pace off the bike, it's not quite as bad, and it kind of takes the edge off. And so I think once you kind of get into the race season, you know, you can maintain the upper end speed with just like strides, you know, a couple sprints here and there, some hill sprints, things like that, just kind of mixed in every couple weeks. Um, strides, I think you can do a couple times a week. That's good for you. Um, but then you can kind of cap most of your training at your open 5K pace or just below your open 5K pace. Uh, because I think for most people, like your triathlon 10K pace, you can put in quite a bit of volume at that pace because it's not super demanding, right? It's not uh, it's not like you're out there running 120% of your, your threshold and, and you're dying, right? Especially without the bike first, right? When we're talking about doing these runs on fresh legs, then the, the pace is pretty manageable. And so even your 5K off the bike pace, that's going to be tough but it's not going to be as damaging muscularly as, as running uh, the faster paces. So Good as time. you get toward the season, um, I think, I think one last thing to kind of talk about with the run is running off the bike. And so you do want to design some rides where you'll have similar fatigue and then get off the bike and do, you know, short, a short bout of, you know, whether it's sprint or Olympic distance, you know, two or three times a K at your race pace with a little bit of rest in between. Um, you know, if you're really ambitious, maybe you can do, you know, like a 40, 45 minutes of hard total effort, um, on the bike and then get off and run 4k at, at your 10k pace. But I think that's probably about the limit, you know, again, unless you're like a really high volume athlete, uh, and maybe you don't have a race or something nearby before your your big olympic distance race you can kind of simulate that in training by doing a big ride and then doing you know half or a good chunk of the the 10k awesome stuff keith i think that's helpful um honestly my takeaway and i think it's probably going to be one of my key takeaways from all these sessions that we're going to go through and breaking down the different races is like if this sounds too complicated for you and you're trying to put your own training program together get a coach right um or at the very least like and i say very least like go to training peaks and find like a generic training plan or something like that that works for you but um i think it's more complicated especially as you're like trying to work to get faster uh, making sure you hit all the different training zones and you do it in the right way it's it's not something i can personally handle so uh, i think most and, and most people probably fall in that category you need some help with it so if this sounds like too much get some help yeah. Thank you, Keith, for kind of running us through the short course. Um, in future episodes, we'll be diving into other race distances. So make sure to uh, be on the lookout for those episodes to come in, in uh, the next couple of weeks. Let's talk about news and a lot of races to recap. So we'll keep it short and brief. The first one I didn't watch at all. So, Keith, tell us about the grand final. <laughs> no surprise. Uh, the grand final is really exciting. I think I think this was one of the best uh, triathlons I've I've watched. And in you know the race in itself wasn't overly spectacular, but um, on the women's side it was basically a head to head between Flora and Georgia Taylor Brown. And uh, Flora ended up getting the world title. Uh, she won the race um, pretty convincingly. And so that was um, the women's race was pretty good, but the the men's race is where it got really exciting. Um, and it was down to Hayden Wild and Alex Yee trying to, uh, trying to get the world title. And it was, it was going to be one of those two guys at, at least that's what everybody thought. Um, 
but the next guy in the uh, world triathlon standings was Leo Berger and Leo Berger needed to win the race and he needed Alex Yee to finish fourth and he needed Hayden Wild to finish sixth in order to win the world championship. And uh, Leo was able to get into a breakaway and uh, I think they had nine guys away most of the day. And then both uh, Alex and Hayden were in the chase pack and as the uh, as the race was going on, you could kind of see the live standings. And at at some point, both Alex and Hayden had the lead in the points. And then they both got uh, Hayden kind of blew up on the last lap, and he finished exactly sixth. And then Alex Yee got out sprinted for third, so he finished exactly fourth. So Leo Berger ended up winning the world title, and he didn't even know it because he hadn't. He claims that he didn't do the math in the beginning, and he didn't see the. The other, where the other two guys finished exactly. And so he found out in his post-race interview that he was for sure the world champion. Um, and it was, it was really exciting just to, uh, to see the points drama unfold. That sounds pretty cool. So you need to go back no, and watch I, it. I heard it. I, I read the news articles about it. I was like, oh man, that's, that's pretty exciting actually. Um, but unfortunately I didn't actually end up watching the race because I haven't followed, I haven't followed that series at all. So um, just wasn't aware of, of all the potential drama or anything else that was was going on. Yeah, 2023, you need to be be better. Well, at that. we'll try. Um, oh, I'll try. I think like we also need to talk like how to do this, yeah. how to do triathlon for a time, you know, crunched person with a lot of busy things going on in their own lives. Like everyone's got things. Man, it gets tough. Like just balancing training, balancing. Like I'm very interested yeah. in following some of the races, but you can only you can only follow so many of them. Um, and we have three more to talk about really quickly. So let's go through those. Iron Man is real. One item stood out to, to uh, really yeah, briefly to on. It. Yeah. The, the biggest thing on, on Israel is that uh, Patrick Lange ran two thirty and change for his uh, marathon. Um, I think looking at Strava, it was somewhere around 300, 300 maybe 400 meters short. Um, but that still converts to something under two thirty two. And so that's a, that's a pretty fast, fast run. Uh, he ended up winning there over Daniel Backegaard. Uh, the field was okay. Um, they had a lot of money out there. So, you know, there were a few bigger names. Uh, Ruth Assel won on the, uh, the women's side. So, but I guess the question is, and then, uh, can, I think the next two races we had. Can yep. Patrick do that? And I would say Kona, but we'll talk about it here in a second. Can he do that in Ironman World Championship? Again, like he's he's historically one of the fastest runners of the sport. There's some new Norwegians that are coming on that that are quite a bit faster than what we've seen historically. But can Patrick compete? And maybe the answer is yeah. Maybe the answer is yeah. He had a penalty in Kona last year and was never I, I hope so. never was kind of in it after that. So yeah, the best thing for our sport is to see all these guys that can run actually running with each other. And so I, I hope it happens. It would be fun to see that. All right. Let's cover Daytona, and um, I don't have a whole lot to say about challenge. Is it challenge Daytona? Clash, sorry. Clash Daytona. It's Clash. Um, yeah, other yeah. than, like, it's just so interesting to see a sport or an event that two years ago in 2020 was, like, what, $1.2, $1.5 million pro, pro prize purse kind of deteriorate into what it is today. Now, there's still some strong professionals there, but it's, one, it's late in the year. Um, it's post world championships and uh, I it just not getting the attention it deserves um, wasn't necessarily the field was far from the field 
that it saw two years ago, even one year ago. And um, I don't know, it's in, it'll be interesting to see what Clash turns into or develops into from this point in time, but it's not heading in the right direction. No, it's it's definitely uh, fallen off. Um, you know, and the prize money is a lot lower. That, that one magic year of 2020, it was the PTO championship. And so that was really exciting. Um, but now it's it's just kind of a B or C tier race and um it's just not it doesn't have the same draw that it used to it's a to. cool environment i wish it but we still got a pretty yeah, good I race it, i wish it had yeah more of a draw but like athletes are getting professionals are racing from march april all the way till december it's kind of like you can only do so many races in a year and by the time december rolls around there's not that many pros that are really racing hard or competitively at this point of the year so all right Next race up, right. Indian Wells, and this yeah. one saw some some pretty good racing, pretty good pro list. Um, on the men's side, we had Sam Long, we had Lionel Sanders, and many others. It was turned out to be quite an eventful race. And what stood out to you on that? Uh, I think the biggest thing was Jackson Laundry, who uh, was at Clash just uh, that we just talked about. He finished eighth there, and then. Flew, that was Friday, flew across the country, got into Indian Wells, finished second behind Sam Long. Um, maybe maybe he could have won Indian Wells if he hadn't uh, hadn't done that, but um, that was pretty neat to see somebody try to do that. And uh, if you're one of those many guys that finished behind him, that's that's tough. <laughs> well, I mean, I, the, the question that comes to my mind, he knows he's racing Indian Wells. Was that something weighing on his mind <clears throat> when he's racing Clash in Daytona? Like, I, like it has to be a little bit it has to be so was he holding back um but he came out of the water really close to sam they biked together and sam pulled away on the run and like i saw some of his post race interview and he was saying like he was really having to push it exceptionally hard on the bike and much harder than he thought he was going to have to just to stay with sam um he said that hey that was his goal he came out with sam he's going to stay with sam it's impressive to, I feel like, to see him race that strong of a bike and come off and still race a really strong run. Um, but he's always done good in these West Coast races. Like, he yeah. did exceptionally well in the spring in Oceanside. He's doing well at Indian Wells. So maybe he needs to do some more West Coast racing. So. Yeah, that's that's his thing. But, uh, you know, even if he was holding back in uh, in Daytona, that's still a two-and-a-half-hour race um, that he did, you know, 36 hours before. Oh. He would so never that's admit pretty, pretty yeah, impressive. that he was holding back. No pro ever probably would, but like it has to weigh on your mind before the race. Other thing that stood out to me, Lionel Sanders had a terrible swim. And he talked about uh, in the post-race interview is that he ended up having a panic attack or cold. I guess the water was exceptionally cold in well. It's a cold water attack of some sort. Like I think we've all been there where you jump in the cold water and your breath just goes away and you just can't swim quite right um so he got dropped off the back of the swim and pretty much ruined his day from there biked alone caught up to a lot of different people throughout the day had the fastest run of the day but because of a bad swim we were talking about it earlier still happened at 70.3 swim's important and uh, it was a little bit out of his control like everyone's had those moments where either it's uh because of the the uh, mass start nature of it that probably didn't affect him because he's done so many of them or it was the exceptionally cold water uh, where you jump in and, and you just can't breathe yeah 
Yeah, that happens. And, and, you know, he did a good job of still putting together a good race and, and getting fourth and nearly getting third, um, behind Bart Arnutz. So good, good performance there. Um, I think the other big standout for me is seeing Matt McElroy move up to the long, long distance, uh, for the first time. Uh, he was not really competitive on the bike. Um, well, I think this was that maybe this was his second time. I think he did one of the PTO events. Um, but that that's not quite the same distance. Um, but he got, he got dropped on the bike. Um, he only biked 211. I say only that's still very fast. You know, we would love to bike 211. Uh, but it's still, <laughs> he gave Sam 10 minutes. Um, and then he did have the third fastest run. So interesting to see that. Um, we saw the same thing kind of in Daytona, um, a couple of short course guys moving up. And so, that's always fun to see, to see how the draft legal guys do when they move up to the, the longer races. Okay. And then uh, on the women's side, Paula Finley got the win over Tamara Jewett. She had about a six minute lead off the bike and then was able to just uh, pretty much coast from there. And then uh, Danielle Lewis uh, rounded off the podium and, and finished third. Yeah. I mean, Paula, I'm interested. I haven't seen, any notes or interview commentary like was she falling apart on the run or was she just jogging the den because her run wasn't impressive she can run much better than that um i'm i'm not sure what where that landed yeah i, I wasn't anyway, really that either impressive performance yeah um i mean she had it she had it pretty much wrapped up she could have just jogged the run and, yeah. and got a win there so all right um all right um, so i think we're gonna get we had one sentence Sorry, I want to do like one sentence on good or bad because we are like this podcast is getting long enough anyway. Um, yeah. Kona, women only. Men are going to be somewhere undisclosed, still TBD, probably Nice. Good or bad for the sport of try? One sentence. I think that moving away from Kona is good for the sport, but I think that splitting up the men and the women on different days is not. I would like to see them. Okay. Yeah. I would like to see them together in an alternate location. All right. I think it's bad for the sport because people that have been doing triathlon that are qualifying for the Ironman world championships. It has been probably a five, a 10, however many year path destination for them to accomplish. And Ironman is now just taking it away from them. And it's going to make it even more complicated because now you have people qualified for 2023 in Kona and they're deferring to 2024 on the men's side. Right. And I think it's going to create a bunch of issues and there's a bunch of triathletes right now that only want to go to Kona and maybe 10 years down the road. Good. Next 10 years that that was like three sentences. Yeah. I think it will be better in the long term. I hope they find a way to put the two sexes back together. That to me, that's the the toughest part is that they're not happening in the same the same place at about the same time. So, all right, but yeah, I think this will be good eventually. Uh, we we'll had one out. question, but I, I will never race that. it not in Kona. Okay, see, and I was excited. I was like, man, no, maybe I want to go to Nice, but but now if if I do an Ironman in twenty twenty three, it's not gonna the the time of year I was looking at isn't gonna qualify me for. Nice, it's gonna qualify me for Conus, so now I I'm not gonna go. Maybe it'll qualify you for Kona, but if all the twenty twenty three qualifiers defer to twenty twenty four, there won't even be slots available 
for them to offer yeah. at the later races. Right. Yeah, I think I think it is going to be messy for a couple of years. They're, yeah. They're gonna have to cut down on the qualifications for twenty twenty four because there's gonna be a ton that defer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, we had one question. I think we'll, we're going to push that because this is a really long podcast. So we'll we'll hit that on the next show. All right. This was good. This was informative. Um, we did run into some technical difficulties. So hopefully you've stuck with us and uh, it doesn't come out. I'm able to piece this together. Well, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back again with a, another breakdown of a different race duration. And um, we'll talk to you then. Thanks for yeah, listening. Thanks for listening.